My name is Rachel Yoder. I curate the 11th Hour Lecture Series, and I live and write here in Iowa City. And I'm very excited to introduce to you today Sandra Schofield. If you were here on Friday, she gave a really standout reading um, from her memoir, which I plan to go and get today at Prairie Lights. So without further ado, Sandra Schofield is the author of seven novels that include Beyond Deserving, a finalist for the National Book Award, Occasions of Sin, which you read from on Friday if you were here, which is a memoir, a book of essays about family titled Mysteries of Love and Grief, and a recent book of stories, Swim, Stories of the 60s. She has also written two craft books for fiction writers, The Scene Book, a primer for the fiction writer, and The Last Draft, The Novelist's Guide to Revision. Sandra is on the faculty of the Low Residency Solstice MFA program at Pine Manor College. She is also an intrepid traveler, an avid painter, and a besotted grandmother, and hails from Montana. Today, Sandra will present Refine Your Writing with Attention to Style, in which she'll provide models, ideas, and resources for improving style, from sentence-level considerations to more global ones. Please join me in welcoming Sandra Schofield. Good morning, and thank you for coming, and I hope this will be useful. You should know that the baseline to me is clear, shapely structure not flourishes or acrobatics or inventiveness, which may become naturally to some people, but almost never work when you have to reach for them. From your mastery of clean, transparent prose, you can work with confidence to develop your individual voice. You can choose writers you admire and let them teach you by example how to exploit the endless possibilities of our wonderful language. Sister Gonzaga, my seventh grade teacher at the Academy of Mary Immaculate, used to say, write, read, parse, and polish. And that's what we did all of seventh grade. I say in another version of that, clarity, simplicity, humility, and, if, and affection. Clarity is understandable, simplicity I'm going to talk about. Humility, I really mean a respect for the language and the sense that you're always learning how to write it better, and for that reason, an affection. I love English. I am ever so grateful to Sister Gonzaga for her excellent instruction, and I concur with her in believing that this sentence is the essential building block of prose. All of your writing is done a sentence at a time, so let's start there. As the writer Verlin Klinkenborg says in his book, Several Short Sentences About Writing, quote, the fundamental act of revision is literally becoming conscious of the sentence, seeing it for what it is word for word as a shape and in relation to all the other sentences in the piece, close. So if you aspire to write like Ernest Hemingway, Aaron Dottie Roy, Elmore Leonard, Cormac McCarthy, my advice to you is grow the neck of a giraffe. That's about how likely you are to write by them, like them. If you long to have the distinctiveness of a Joan Didion, Virginia Woolf, 
Grace Paley or George Saunders. Admire them, study their sentences, then write with honesty and passion because that is how you develop your voice. I believe that the better, better models are writers that are remarkable for their lack of idiosyncrasy. The likes of Kent Harev, you may know his, song, his book Plain Song, Evan S. Connell, who wrote Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge, Robert Caro, the biographer of Lyndon Johnson, John McPhee, uh, Margaret Atwood, Richard Russo, Yiyun Lee, Jhumpa Lahiri, writers who do not call attention to themselves, although you find yourself, certainly as a writer, admiring their prose. I also suggest that you read the articles in fine journals, like the New Yorker, Harper's, and the smaller journals. Look for writers who don't call attention to themselves. These are the kinds of pieces that engage you, instruct you, move you, and you aren't even thinking about the prose or the voice. Then you step back and you think, that's a good writer. Um, when you see a beautiful flourish that you admire, copy it into your sentence journal. And you all do have one, right? You should have one, because it is here as you begin copying and mimicking writers you admire that you start to elaborate on your own basic style. Um, style is, of course, more than the absence of errors, but errors do mar style. You knew that. Your first step toward developing an admirable style is to have a plan for assuring that your writing is free of errors. I just can't say that enough. Nobody, you're not going to have a style if you're making mistakes. That can take some time and consciousness raising, and all of us do make mistakes. I've listed resources for you that will give you information, models, and exercises to get rid of pesky bad habits and other references to help you modulate and elaborate sentences. So on one hand, you're doing housework. On the other hand, you're hanging the drapes. I believe this is the right route to style. Eventually, your distinct voice will come through because you don't have errors to distract from it. I think of the serious apprentice writer as one who not only writes manuscripts, but studies writing as a craft. So I have grouped some activities that conscientiously done will make you a better writer, I promise. And I make my MFA students do these, and it, sometimes it's a struggle to get them going, but they're always happy in the end. The activities are not meant to be done in any particular sequence. First, master grammar, review grammar. Maybe you had it and maybe you don't. The younger you are, the less likely you are to have ever studied grammar. If you have studied a foreign language, you're lucky, because then at least you know how grammar works. It's never too late. Get yourself a good contemporary grammar book, and most of all, learn the parts of a sentence. Learn what they're called and how they work. This gives you the vocabulary to look at your own work. This is your language. Review basic rules about agreement, conjunction, and so on. 
However careful and clever you are, I'm betting you will recognize some uh-ohs that you didn't know before. Here are some of the most common problems I see in apprentice work. Dangling participles. These are phrases that don't seem to modify anything or else modify the nearest noun, which is not the right one. Here's an example. Flitting from flower to flower, the girl was stung by the bee. We see those. Another, lack of agreement between noun and pronoun. Now I'm going out on a limb here. Here's my example. The artist has many choices of medium for their projects. This use of there as a singular pronoun has become more and more common and for a lot of people is acceptable. So I have nothing to say about its use in speech, which is fine. And I'm not going to take on issues of political correctness about gender references. But what I will say is that if you're not making a political statement about when you use there as a singular pronoun, it's probably used carelessly and unnecessarily. So be conscious of it. Don't do it because you didn't notice or care. It means something to you. If it means something to you, embrace it as part of the evolution of language because you've got plenty of company. I remember that Shakespeare once wrote, God send everybody their heart's desire. Another example, ambiguous antecedents. I could ride a horse through town screaming, it, this, these, it, this, these, stop it. Every I read student papers, I read books where it seems that every other sentence starts with it or this or these. The use of three, these three words to begin sentences is an egregious misuse of style. Be sure it is absolutely clear what you are referring to because these sometimes turns out to be ideas presented 30 words ago and we don't know what you're referring to. Even if you don't have this problem, meaning you're not referring, doing a wrong case of referral, be wary of the overuse of the construction because it's tedious. I have my students use the edit find on their computer and do one at a time it, this, and these so that then they have a picture of how many sentences began that way uh, all through their material. And it's an eye-opener. Try it sometime. Sort of fun. Um, lack of agreement between subject and predicate. This almost always happens because the sentence is too long. There's too much space, too many words between the beginning of the sentence and when we finally get to the predicate, the verb, that is. Um, again, I have my students go through and underline or, or use a color or whatever they want to identify subject and predicate on maybe five pages of sentences, and then to go back and just read those two words. And very frequently, they do not agree. Um, I hear them slap their foreheads. I also have some of them say that they don't know what subjects and predicates are. So back to the grammar book. If you don't know what a subject and a predicate are, 
learn because you really, really do need to know. Now, that's talking about errors. There are also what I think of as infelicities, ways that the sentences just aren't quite right, even if they're not grammatically wrong. Um, these are discussed well in the book Line by Line by Claire Cook, which is on your list. The first kind is what we call baggy sentences. They just go on and on and on. Sometimes they're gobbledygook. Sometimes they're perfectly good in terms of being grammatically correct and so forth, but you lose track of them. This is the way that liars and salesmen talk, <laughs> not artists. There is, of course, such a thing as a beautiful sentence. And you may be able to write one, but I would never let a fancy sentence stand without going back through it to make sure it's right. Um, there used to be, a, there, in Atlantic Magazine, there used to be uh, Christine Schwartz. Uh, you could, I mean, you can get that from the archives. Christine Schwartz did something, I can't remember what it was called, but it, it was identifying beautiful sentences, and then she would say why they're wonderful. And, and those are mostly long, you know, elaborated, winding story, almost like stories in a sentence. So don't, don't think I'm not, that I'm saying you can't have long sentences, but baggy sentences or something else. Um, another problem is lack of parallel structure. This is a problem in connecting thoughts that ought to go together, but sound jarring. And again, you'll see that when you do some study. Overuse or misuse of the passive tense. You've all heard that from your writing books and your teachers, but be conscious of it. Now, here's one I love. Overuse of ing. Do the same thing. Put ing into your edit find and see what comes up. You will laugh out loud. Here's an example taken straight from a student paper. I clung to him, crying for him not to leave, running after him, stumbling on the walk. That actually wasn't all of the sentence, but that is as much as I could bear to copy. Um, and even more frequently, I see them it turned around like this, crying for him not to leave, running after him. I clung to him, stumbling on the walk. Again, just too many ings. This is what I call an infelicity. It's just isn't quite right. So review these, review your own writing, don't get caught with your shoes and knots, okay? Then you can practice elaborated sentences. One of the wonderful things about finding models of elaborated sentences and then what, when you copy it, what you're copying is the syntax. Okay, this is such and such a phrase, here's where the noun is, Here, here's where the predicate comes in and so forth. When you first of all, to figure out the sentence heightens your sense of what a sentence does. Then, if you mimic it using some idea from a manuscript you're working on, I, I will guarantee that you will discover something about your story or your prose or whatever that you didn't find before, because the sentence shapes thought. So I, I highly recommend that. So I'm not saying always 
do short things. And then I have a book to, to recommend. I not just read it, but memorize Noah Lukeman's readable and practical A Dash of Style. He is, he is an agent. He knows it's called the art. Well, it's the Dash of Style, the Art and Mastery of Punctuation. It's on your list. I especially appreciate his discussion of the use of space for section and chapter breaks. And I think this is uh, an issue of style. I see it across like the last 10 years in prose where it's as if writers no longer trust the reader to realize that there's been a change in time or setting. And so they have to announce it with four lines blank spaces. That didn't, that didn't used to be true. I mean, it used to be that if you went from the characters are in the bedroom and now they're out on the street, you did that by saying they went to, out onto the street. But now they, you want to leave them in media rays here and pick them up in media rays here and put four lines. It's tiresome. And I think that it's a kind of holdover from screenwriting from screenplays where there's cuts. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But just be conscious of it and choosy about when you, when you use it. And I think it is, and he does a wonderful job of discussing it. There are times when it's good. It's a real change. But just because you've gone out of one room and into the other does not require four blank spaces. Um, I think that's something that's happened in the last 10 years. So those are all do-nots. What about a do? That's where I've written my four words on the, on the uh, board. Resolve to write with brevity, clarity, precision, and velocity. And I think the words speak for themselves. Brevity. Don't take more words to say something than you need to say it. And sometimes you need long sentences. Sometimes you need long paragraphs, but not all the time. And clarity. Each sentence, nobody should have to go back to the beginning of one of your sentences in order to read it. And I think if you become conscious of it, you, or some, you get someone to read, you know, you have a partner or whatever, and say, I want you to read this, and if there's any place where you don't understand what I'm saying or, or what's happening, would you flag it for me? Um, I think you'll be surprised. So clarity, that you say exactly what it is you mean to say, which, and going right along with that is precision, by which I'm really meaning the choice of the exactly right word, um, be it a verb, be it an adverb, whatever it is, there's a right word. There's the first word that comes to mind, but that's not necessarily the right word. And the first word that comes to mind is the draft word. The word that you reach for and select is the precise word. And I'm going to talk about drafting in a, in a minute. The last word is velocity. And somebody else said that, and I don't, in all these people, and I don't know who it was, and I just loved it. It's the idea that a sentence pushes things forward. Uh, the writer Constance Hale has said that um, 
Every sentence is a little story. It has an actor, and it has an action, and at the end, something is different than at the beginning. Now, is that not a definition of a story? It's also a definition of a sentence, which is why long, rambling sentences that you can't follow are like bad stories. You, don't, you get lost somewhere in the middle. Whereas a beautifully elaborated sentence that you follow almost the sound of it as much as the meaning has velocity. It carries you from the beginning to the end. And that's what, that is what you are striving for with every sentence, with every paragraph, with every page. You want to carry the reader with you toward the place the prose will arrive. And it's like saying, make it a good ride. Um, so the lot, you want that sense of movement. And that's one of the reasons passive, the overuse of passive tense uh, doesn't work, because it's doing this. It's, not move, you know, it's moving forward by stopping and having a little hitch. So be, be aware of it and be choosy about when you use it. Um, and again, make sure that when you use it, this, and these, they, that it's very clear what part of the sentence you are referring to. It, it, it is genuinely worth your time to take a manuscript and highlight or go through and circle those words and then make a decision. Is this a good use of this pronoun? Um, it's, it's like you could, go to a whole, you, know, you could go to a seminar and pay somebody to arrive at the same conclusion that you can do just by doing that. Um, be, pre be precise, be unambiguous, be accurate, watch for vague references, and think like a poet, not a bird but a wren, not hot, but searing. Don't think about style. Think about the clarity of what you're trying to say. Okay? Make sure every sentence goes somewhere. That's velocity. It should stand alone as an assertion, but it must also push the story or the essay, the letter, forward, so that at the end of every sentence, you're someplace towards the arrival and different from where you started. You want your writing to have a sense of energy and movement. You want questions to be raised and answered. You want to arrive. So take a paragraph, you know, do it yet today. Take a paragraph of your old writing, particularly if you take a paragraph that you, you know, you're not crazy about it, but you need to tell the things that are in it. And just look at it with these four things in mind. Consider one attribute at a time. Could I say this more concisely? Could I use a more precise word? Is it clear what, clear what I'm trying to say? Is there energy in the sentences? So choose writers you admire for their style. And again, I would say, don't go way out on a limb trying to copy somebody that's famous for his style. Um, Cormac McCarthy, for example, is a favorite writer of mine. And what I tell my students is, read Cormac McCarthy 
not for style or the sound of his voice because you want to try to copy him. Read him because he is able to create a sense of emotion and, um, I can't think of the right word, can't think of the right word. Um, but anyway, he's, he, is make, he is able to make you understand what is going on inside a character and he never, I'm talking about the Border Trilogy, uh, All the Pretty Horses, but he never says what somebody's thinking. Now that's, that takes some talent. And it's, and it's good as an as a apprentice writer to study that because what you'll learn is that it is the precision of the observations that he makes of the action and the setting and what characters are doing that carries the story, not what characters are thinking. Because, you know, it's a little bit of a side issue here, but one of the things I see in student writing is that it's like the action, actions of the story, the plot of the story or whatever, is just an excuse to go from one long thinking to another long thinking passage. And what you want is to let what is happening carry the story and what is being thought or felt emerge from that in, in really organic ways. But that is, as I said, that's another issue. So choose writers you admire, read them, then take a page, study it, and try to figure out why you like it. Read more pages from the same author, and that's the way you immerse yourself in voice. We don't have time to talk about rhythm, but a good paragraph does have a rhythm, and a good author has a rhythm, a sound to the, to the language. I can't emphasize enough how, much, how helpful it is to read prose aloud and, and to do it often. You know, let's say you, sit, you have a time that you sit down to write. Before you pick up your manuscript to write, have the book that you are reading or that you have loved, pick it up and read a page aloud. Um, I can't name them, but I can remember reading writers who said that they grew, grew up reading the Bible. And certainly back in the days of Faulkner and so forth, when, when there was a great deal of reading the Bible aloud, language tended to have a more sonorous sound, and it has to have been par partly influenced by that. What, what language, ask yourself, what language do I hear? And, what, and there's audiobooks galore. While I'm a painter, and I listen to audiobooks while I paint. And sometimes I'm not even following the book. I get caught up in what I'm doing, and I don't know where I am in the story. So I pick, um, I pick things that I like the sound of. And um, it, it starts to get, I mean, how do we learn language as babies? We learn language by people talking to us. So how do we learn language as writers? Well, by reading, but also by sound. And the beauty of style is often the beauty of the sound of the language. Have you really thought about the sound of your language? Do read aloud.
Okay, so also try to get the rhythms into your sentences that way, just like you learn songs. So just to give an, you an experience with working from a model on the, towards the bottom of your handout, um, there is a sentence from Ha Jin in Waiting, very simple. Every summer, Lin Kong returned to Goose Village to divorce his wife, Xu Yu. Now, I broke that super simple into the sentence parts. How often someone did something in order to, and what I'm trying to do here is model how I use a sentence as a model. So once again, look at it. How often someone did something in order to. So I used that to write my own sentence, and it came out like just off the top of my head. Every summer, I make German potato salad to celebrate the season and the memories of my grandmother. That's my sentence, right? It, it doesn't sound anything like ha jin, but it absolutely came from me copying the model. So I want you to do one right now. Use, use how often someone did something in order to and write a sentence or think a sentence. So as you write sentences, modeling after someone else's sentence, do you see how a story emerges? It just by trying to follow a pattern, your story comes. Your voice emerges. Your style is imprinted, even though you wrote it exactly like Ha Jin wrote his. Am I right? Okay, so you, I took a very s simple sentence, but name a writer that you really admire for style. So you're going to study and copy beautiful writing into your sentence notebook. And there's lots of things on the handout to help you with that. So I want to talk to you about something else called classic style. And I want to propose that at least for a test period, you think of it as your default style while you are studying, practicing, and developing your mature style. If you work toward it, what it will do, for want of a better phrase, is cleanse your prose. It will strip it and focus you. Classic style, it's actually a name of a way of writing, is not the plain style of conversation or, say, of speaking out in a Quaker meeting. Classic style is the expression of the way a person sees the world in a manner that engages the reader. And that's written on your handout. The expression of the way a person sees the world in a manner that engages the reader. Because that's where your style comes from, in conveying your vision, the way you sense the world, the way you sense beauty, the way you sense pain comes out in, in your writing. Is this not what you hope to accomplish? I didn't always know that there was such a thing as classic style, but I learned there was when I read Clear and Simple as the Truth. I recognized it instantly as what I want is to reach my readers as if they are with me. I want them to hear my voice, and I don't care about dazzling them. I want them to be with me as I am with my characters. I think that's probably what you want, too. 
everyone can't or won't want to write in classic style ultimately, but mastering some of its attributes will make you a better writer, even if you turn out to be the next Bronte sister. It will help you to rid your writing of cliches, abstractions, pronouncements, and hesitations. Once again, rid your writing of cliches, abstractions, pronouncements, and hesitations. Let me speak briefly about the attributes of classic style, and you can learn from the resources on your handout, Pinker's Sense of Style, and Thomas and Turner's Clear and Simple is the Truth. All of the concerns I have spoken about so far are subsumed in the need to engage readers. The writer of classic prose isn't using writing to work things out. The working out has already been done, perhaps in a prior draft. Classic prose isn't ironic, isn't self-conscious, isn't argumentative, isn't highly romantic or emotional. It conveys something the reader knows or sees so that the reader will know or see it too. That's the goal. The goal isn't to wow the reader. The goal isn't to confuse the reader, to impart pain. It's to make the reader see and experience what you see and experience. It's just one way of writing, and I suggest it because if you do it well, you will be more confident about your own style, and that will flower from what you learn. I don't think writers actually set forth to develop style anyway. David Foster Wallace just was who he was, and that's how he wrote. Cormac McCarthy sees and hears the world in his very special way, and so on. Annie Lamott has a voice that I don't think anybody could learn to write uh, with that voice. Um, some of my students have tried to write like Cormac McCarthy, and what I tell them is, you are mimicking a fashion, not a style, when you try to copy the way someone else writes. Proust was working out a whole life propped up in his bed. Um, I'm not saying that good writers don't work hard to sound like they do, but I am saying that there is something called talent, and there isn't a whole lot you can do about that. How much, all of you have talent because you, you speak a language and you have stories. So let's just have that be the given. You have your talent, now you want your style. Why, while I mentioned, I mentioned humility a while back, so keep asking yourself, have I done the best I can do? That's what I mean by humility. And measure it not for what makes it exceptional, but for what makes it accessible. Say that again. Classic style measures the quality of the prose not by what makes it exceptional, but by what makes it accessible. You want the reader to be with you. One of the things I especially like about the concept is that it relies on vision. It represents a way of thinking that is confident because it is honest, straightforward, and true. It isn't showing off, it's showing. It's a window on what the writer sees and knows. It is confident but humble. And here is the key to achieving classic style. And here is where I'm probably saying something provocative. Set aside the idea that you have to draft freely before you actually write. That always you are required to 
put your ideas down as fast as you can. If you're compelled to do that, if that's what you do, do it. But start over with what I'm saying. Um, instead, think of it this way. Not that ideas pour onto the page, but that you think a thought before you write it. Got the difference? Not that you are thinking the thought as you write it as fast as you can, but that you are thinking, weighing, considering. Not, not necessarily trying to shape the sentence, but just that you have thought the thought and know what it is you want to say before you turn it into the sentence on the page. It's a very different way of writing. So think the thought before you write the sentence that expresses it. You may need to turn that thought around and around like a stone in your hand to get the right view of it. You may come back later and revise, but it won't be because you need to fix the sentence. It will be because you have appraised the thought and recast it. So, as I'm saying, it's a little bit out there to say, you know, a story doesn't always start with a wild-ass draft. Sometimes it thoughts starts by digging deeply into your own consciousness to find exactly what it is you want to say. And classic prose says that you think the thought before you write it. It is perfect performance. It's not the kind of writing that struggles on the page for meaning. It's a window onto the world, but not into the labor that, uh, of conceiving and revising that world. Each word is the right word. So the distinction I'm making is we have this idea that we do a rough draft, right? We do a fast draft. We do an unselfconscious draft. I'm, that's fine. Do it. But what I don't think is, a, is fine is then to take that draft into your hand and start fixing it. Because if you start fixing it, you're stuck in that draft. You have not rethought it. So do, the, do what you have to do to find your story. But when you sit down to write classic prose, there is, there is a thing in your mind. And you are accessing it and making it accessible to the reader by thinking the thought before you write the sentence. Okay, do you see the difference between that and looking down with your double-spaced thing and writing in the margins? You are thinking the thought. And here is an important trait of classic style. Its simplicity makes it have a quality of conversation if only a speaker chose the right word. It's assured, and it reads assured. It's energetic, but it's not anxious. It isn't about the writer. It's about the subject. It's about the character. It's about the images. And it hides the labor of the writing. It's a window, not a mirror. You all may be wondering why I suggest classic style as a way to develop your own style. It may sound ascetic or cool to you, and you resist the notion of losing your personality in it. But proponents of classic style insist that it allows your voice to become beautifully apparent. Mark Twain is identified as someone who wrote in classic style. And I dare you to read Twain and not recognize his voice. Other writers cited as masters of classic style include Toni Morrison, 
Oliver Sacks, Edith Wharton, and Ann Beatty. How do you practice such a style? By writing with economy and precision, keeping foremost in mind the principle, thinking is not writing, and writing is not thinking. They are two separate acts. Writing depends upon prior thought, and the sentence begins after the thought it expresses has been completed. This flies of the face in everything you've heard about drafting and dreaming and exploring, to which I say do that on Tuesday, writing classic prose on Wednesday. Approach each sentence first as a thought, then a consideration of the thought, and then an effort to express it clearly. Writing in classic style might be your second draft. The goal will not be to fix the first one, but to unearth its story, to refine as a gem from ore. At some points, you will see that you don't even want to follow the line of the old draft, and that's fine. You aren't tied to it, and that's the point of drafting. You've gone over the territory, and now you focus. And let's say that your first draft you attempted in classic prose. When you're done with the draft, that may still not be what you want for the story. But I guarantee you'll be closer to it than you would have been the other way. Am I suggesting that you all go home and write my way? No. You don't think the same way. You don't have the same perceptions. You don't have the same vocabulary. And you don't have the same stories to tell. There's no way you'll end up sounding the same. But I do believe that if you write with intention, energy, but also control, if you shape each thought, you will become a better writer. You will let your observation or your argument or your story shine through the clarity, the, the window of your sentences. You will abandon cliches and errors. And you will start to hear your true voice, your true style, in the service of your subject. Classic morph, classic prose will morph into your style. And no one will read your writing wishing they had a red pencil at hand. Thank you. <laughs>